I'm Chris. And I'm Owen. And this is the Dead War Gamer Society. All right. Hi, everyone. Uh, really excited for this one. We're going to talk about a game we might have mentioned once or twice before, Dark Age by Dark Age Games slash Cool Mini or Not. I think this is going to be an interesting episode. We're going to cover the basics of the game, but I'm going to hold back just a little bit. We're working to get a guest, um, someone that's worked on the game on the show for another episode. And also, we know that a lot of our listeners are fans of Dark Age, and we didn't want to have a four-hour episode or an absurdly long episode, so we decided to split it up. This is going to be more of uh, a general overview of Dark Age, uh, geared towards people that maybe aren't as familiar with it. We'll do a second episode for those of you who are a bit more familiar with it, and also just give a deeper dive for people that aren't familiar with it. But we figured we'd cut it into two parts, so it's not uh, quite one big bite. But before we get to that, let's talk about hobby updates. Chris, what have you been up to? Uh, a little bit of everything. I actually, <laughs> for the past couple of days, I've been trying to organize my models um, because they kind of took over everything. That's taken a little bit of time. Um, but uh, also just finished uh, painting up the last of my Dark Age St. Luke. Um, so that puts me pretty fully painted for um, the majority of my Dark Age stuff that's assembled. There's just some like odds and ends mostly scarred and I guess theoretically heretic saint stuff that I have left to go at this point. What about you? Uh, I finished up last night uh, priming 2,000 points of Stormcast Eternals. Uh, right after we record this, I'm going to go to a cabin with some buddies. Uh, to be clear, we all got COVID tested before we took off and uh, we're all going to be more than six feet apart wearing masks, but we rented a cabin uh, in the middle of nowhere for a long weekend and we're gonna just you know hobby hero through and try to get uh age of sigma armies done so we each have 2000 points we're gonna try to bust it out in uh mammoth sessions and uh just catch up and have a good time so hopefully uh by the next episode i'll have a complete stormcast eternals army done <laughs> best of luck with that <laughs> yeah you know uh n- not a dead game but uh, a game that gets played a lot nonetheless so uh Hopefully you can put that in the rearview mirror and then move on to bigger and better things. So I guess that brings us to Dark Age. Uh, I'll start out with a quick wiki-style summary of the game. So Dark Age is a post-apocalyptic tabletop skirmish war game originally released uh, in 2005, or that's when the Genesis rulebook came out. There were models and some rules previews released prior to that. It was released by Dark Age Games, and the original designer was Carrie Paris, although BJ, I don't remember his last name, was a uh, kind of the, the lead designer for a lot of the early game. Uh, the game is set in the far future on a world that is not Earth. It heavily uses artwork from a collectible card game called Dark Age Feudal Lords by Gerald Brom. That game was originally released in 1996. Uh, Dark Age is a tabletop war game. It had several editions over the years, the last of which was released in 2017, or the last main rulebook was released in 2017. The last general release was 2018. The game is played with D20s, has alternating activations, 28 millimeter scale miniatures, and typically requires somewhere between 6 or 12 miniatures to play, but uh, in some situations you can go smaller or higher. Um, just so listeners have a a feel for this, Chris, when did you start playing Dark Age? Man, that's a really good question. Um, (laughs) May 2016? Um, I I think it was, uh, basically it was Nova. It was the first Nova I volunteered for Cool Mini or Not at, um, the Nova Open. Um, Bobby, who was previously on our Battletech episode, uh, really pushed me to get into Dark Age. And shortly after I got into it, I just fell in love with the game and um <laughs> it was my primary game for as long as the game was uh, active and supported and even a little bit uh past that point okay right on so uh i think i've got you beat by uh eight years uh, i started playing in 2008 so i i saw a lot of the game come and go i wasn't quite there at the beginning but uh knew a lot of people that worked on it originally and uh, playtested for a few different versions of the game. So uh, it's definitely something near and dear to my heart, as I'm sure longtime listeners have uh, heard us mention it one or two times. I'm going to go over quickly just kind of a history of the releases for the game, and then we'll we'll cut into game background. Um, 
If listeners want a more thorough overview of this, there was a podcast by our friends Chad and Jay uh, on Dark Age when Dark Age was supported in the 2016-2017 time frame. I was actually a guest on that and uh, gave a more detailed history. So I'm just going to kind of shotgun through this, but if you want a deeper dive into that, I can post a link to their podcast. Um, so the game was released with a rule book called Genesis in 2005 that contained the main rules as well as rules for the forsaken and specifically the subfaction saint mark for forsaken and the dragiri and specifically the subfaction ice cast for dragiri that was followed up by exodus which released rules for scarred and the toxic cult subfaction of scarred as well as the saint mary subfaction for forsaken uh, there was also a book called Evolution that came out in the 2008-2009 timeframe, which released rules for the Brood faction as well as the St. John Forsaken subfaction. After that, there was a release of uh, just the rules by themselves and some scenarios in a book called Essence, and that rounded out the first edition of the game. That game was very similar to Warzone or Chronopia in a lot of ways. Uh, it was in centimeters, squad-based, uh, and that had been doing well, but they mixed things up around the 2010-2011 timeframe, put out a second edition, second version, uh, an update to the game that updated it to be in inches and uh, standardized a few things uh, a bit differently than they had been done before. There were some PDFs that were released for free floating around too, and there was a large rulebook called Apocalypse, or uh, Forceless Apocalypse, that uh, covered the background as well as the army rules for a lot of things that have been kind of floating out there with models but no formal book for. So that got you Aircast, St. Luke for the Forsaken, um, Blood Cult for the Scarred, as well as Outcast, which again had been a PDF released at least along with the uh, first edition stuff. Um, there were some supplements for Apocalypse, Devastation, which released uh, the Cult of Metamorphosis for Scarred and the Core Faction, Conflagration, which released the Firecast for Jigiri and the uh, Slavers of uh, Chain Barrows for Outcast. It also uh, reprinted and updated some rules for the Kukulkani faction, which were originally released in Ravage magazine. And then last but not least, Fanaticism, which released the Forsaken subfaction, the Prevailers, as well as gave some updates to all the Forsaken subfactions. Uh, that takes us to around the 2013 timeframe. During this timeframe, a new version of the Master Rules were released, which updated how things worked. So the game, for a good point of time, had been squad-based. So you could take uh, models that required a leader. Most models, if they weren't uh, individual models, you had to take in multiples. The game went away from having squads and moved to something called squad linking. So you had a keyword on a model, and they could activate together in a chain, uh, linked together, hence squad link, which I think is probably one of the main mechanical innovations of the game, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But after the 2013 rules updates, then we got into forceless books. So this is more like a games workshop 40K or Warhammer Fantasy style book where each faction had the rules update all in one go and background and as well as a meta plot was released in conjunction with the books. So we start with Outcast, then Forsaken, Trigiri, Scarb was the last one released, Brood was on deck but never quite uh, made over to the finish line. In 2017, we had another and final edition of the Master Rules. Of the rules updates, the difference between 2013 and 2017, in my opinion, is probably the smallest. 2017 made tweaks and some optimizations to 2013, but uh, didn't stray as far as, say, going from centimeters to inches. So that's kind of a, a quick update of the kind of major releases of Dark Age. Uh, and to be clear, because we've talked about this a couple of times, but I might as well say it here again, too. Dark Age has never officially been canceled. So we don't know that it's officially dead. However, the last release was in early 2018. We had some PDFs in the middle of that year. The designer working on it, Brian C.P. Steele, who was on the last episode, who's now working on uh, Warzone Eternal, uh, had left CMON around that time, and there hasn't been any announcements for the game since. So it's entirely possible, Kumini or not, might uh, pick the game back up and continue releasing things. But in the short term, you can't purchase any more product from Kumini or not. There hasn't been rules or models released in over two years. So Chris and I both feel comfortable saying the game is dead. So we talked a lot about the rules releases. Chris, do you want to give people a quick overview of the background of Dark Age? Sure. I mean, we're definitely going to have one episode that will most likely <laughs> be nothing but background. Um, 
and uh, there's a lot of rich background. I mean, you can't have a game around for, you know, was this 20 years almost? And and not have a pretty dedicated, pretty evolved background. Um, And there's definitely a lot of really interesting stories. It's it's neat to mention that, you know, a lot of the rules were available online for free. So you could 100% never buy a rule book and be able to play the game. But I bought all the rule books just for the story involved in those books themselves. Um, the game itself takes place post-apocalyptic, but not on Earth itself. Um, it's on a faraway planet um, known as Adder, all capitals, Adder, A-T-T-R. At some point before the game um, takes place, it's a well-known planet, well-trafficked planet, primarily for going to do things that you wouldn't be able to do in more civilized parts of the universe. So lots of cool things go, well, cool might not be the right word. Um, Lots of things happen. Lots of shady things happen. Companies uh, exploit things very close to indentured servitude, possibly slavery, um, bioengineering, um, technology research that is on the shadier side of things. And then there's a bit of an issue elsewhere in the universe and everything starts having problems effectively you know space wall street crashes and anybody who's anybody basically anybody who can afford a ship or transport leaves the planet leaving everyone behind the game takes place several years after that when everybody's left in the years that have gone by since everybody's left humans kind of find slash invent their own religion the ones who are left behind are referred to as the Forsaken because they were forsaken and left behind. They kind of gather in and expand outwards from the primary spaceport where all the ships had left from. The humans, as religion kind of develops, sort of go back almost feudally to a theocracy. You have the saints start to develop, which is a primary part of the Forsaken where Mark, who is formerly a bounty hunter, declares himself that he's a saint, and other major factions kind of follow suit and create more saints, which leads to crusades and a lot of the primary story that's going on. Um, going into the oh, the brief faction summaries for the uh, factions that exist, the Forsaken, like we said, are the ones who are left behind. A lot of that's broken down into smaller forces led by saints. So you have St. Mary, you have St. Joan, St. Luke, St. Isaac, St. Mark. St. John. St. John. St. Johan. Yeah. yeah. Um, and theoretically, yeah, St. Johan, sort of, kind of. So um, I, I just want to give some flavor for Forsaken, for people that aren't familiar with them. So you're thinking, oh, okay, cool, people in space, post-apocalyptic, big religious thing, oh, GW again. And the game did a really good job at distinguishing itself from a lot of other things on the market at the time the tone of the game was very cynical that changed towards the end of the game as the designers kind of changed directions a little bit but if you read genesis or exodus it's a very bleak outlook at the future so if you're part of the forsaken technology and the expertise required to run it is just gone you know the example given in a book is oh cool you like open the first aid kit and put on a band-aid you're the town doctor now um the things are dire religion is a huge part of that society but it's played incredibly darkly so mark was a military commander in the forsaken and cynically decided hey i can convince these rubes i work with that they it was their idea to think that I'm a reincarnated saint and I'd use some technology to kind of trick them into you know thinking like oh geez yeah he keeps finding these amazing things and you know like oh it's almost like I'm the reincarnated saint mark and it kind of catches on and it's entirely a play for power and the book portrays pretty much every saint that pops up doing the same thing so it it is not 40k where religion is is treated as as a reality like there really are gods active in the world this is a very very dark and cynical take on all that which which is 
a bit different than say uh, Chronopia or Warzone or a GW game. So j- just just adding a little bit of flavor on on that and, and what sets it apart from some of its competitors. Especially on the technology aspect of things, the things that everything is breaking down fairly continuously leads to, despite it being the future, some armies going into battle with nothing but welded metal pipes and other random assorted junk that they found and hobbled together and anything that's more technologically advanced. And by advanced, we're not talking about, you know, a fancy laser gun for the most part, um, or even like a heavy machine gun. We're talking about like a rifle or their version of a flamethrower, which is essentially a super soaker filled with gasoline. Those things often break down in terrible ways for the user. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it's both a big facet of the background and also a big facet of the rules. And, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but kind of on the other extreme of the technology spectrum. So you have the Forsaken, who are people that are surrounded by the remnants of high technology, you know, trying as best they can to interact with that, understand it, and recreate it, use it to better survive in the environment they're in. You also have the Drigiri, who are the leftovers from a race of spacefaring aliens that trade in mines, you know, Satham. The ruling class of that race had left some of their slaves on the planet, the, you know, bioengineered giants that uh, were efficiently being used to help mine this mineral. Well, when they left, the slaves revolted and took over society. See, the former rulers of society are now enslaved by their former slaves, the the former slaves, which are now the Jaguri as we know them, the best description I can give you is almost like a predator on our culture. So you have these giant aliens that really hunt for sport. Um, they are incredibly against attacking someone any way other than hand-to-hand combat. And that plays out a bit in the rules. They, generally speaking, don't have a lot of ranged weapons. It's a big part of the early game. Some of the subsequently released sub-factions deviate a bit from it, but I'd say as a general character that remains true for the most part. Um, The other big facet of that faction is interactions with the elements. Um, Each sub-faction is themed to kind of a almost platonic element, with one exception. So you have ice, which, okay, water, but they go into, there was a water cast. Ice has kind of taken over for interesting game reasons. Fire, air, shadow is uh, the other one, which, okay, not a platonic, but um, they're very spooky and uh, sneaky and whatnot. Some of these sub-factions have elementals, so creatures that are created out of the elements. There's some... Um, background on how that ties into Xenosathom and energy and spirits and blah, blah, blah. I don't want to do it a disservice by glossing it over here, but I would say if you are interested, uh, it's definitely something to check out on the website. Um, so moving away from kind of the more elementally pure Dragiri, Chris, do you want to cover the Scarred? Yeah, um, you did miss the Earthcast, um, even though they only received, uh, what was it, two boxes before the uh, <laughs> game, unfortunately, stopped being supported. Um, they were definitely a cast, and they have some really interesting rules, uh, and I do believe most of their cards are still up on the site so that people can still mm-hmm. continue to uh, play that faction. Um, yeah, moving into the Scarred. Um <laughs> The Scarred, uh, the best description would be uh, Crazy Murder Cannibals. They also are, are split into casts, but in a completely different way. Um, with the Scarred, it's broken down. You have your uh, blood, blood Cult, you have your Toxic Cult, your Cult of Metamorphosis, and the Cult of Decay. Um, mm-hmm. Each one is led by uh, what they refer to as a father, um, who usually has some form of psychogenic, which um, kind of the universe is magic, but psychological. Um, Psychic power. Psychic power, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Um, (laughs) And uh, so it's led by one powerful, almost always male character. So Blood Cult has one of the strongest warriors as their leader. Um, Toxic Cult has a leader who 
whose body has been so warped by chemicals and corrosion over the years that he is toxic to anything, not just touching him, anything around him. He can spit acid at people um, <laughs> and is viewed to be the toughest based on that cult's mentality. Um, a cult of metamorphosis is actually led by a former forsaken saint um, who really believed in and wanted to push grafting which is the replacing of organic components in a human with mechanical components usually mechanical components um every so often something other um and the cult of decay was the newest cult to be released um for it which kind of focuses on zombies in a in a fashion um led by the only female father that's really mentioned, which would be um, Mother Blazon. Um, there's a lot to go into, just into so much of the scarred history <laughs> forces. They're a very interesting faction overall, but um, I don't think we're going to dive too deep into it. But um, they're they're kind of presented as one of the big baddies of the storyline um, for the most part primarily because they're invading different settlement, primarily human settlements to eat them for food or to, you know, torture them for fun. Oh, also, so uh, Scarred are, are kind of my favorite sub faction in Dark Age. Um, they, they've been what I've played for a lot of the time I've played Dark Age. The background is interesting in that it's not one-dimensional angry cannibal mutants, which is a good way to sum up a lot of the faction now, but the history is a little bit more sympathetic to them. So the Scarred were people that were basically forced out of forsaken society for a variety of reasons, mostly religious. They went out into the desert and and didn't do so good. Um, they found a military, a former military research base that was filled with... Uh, chemical weapons, uh, amongst other things. Uh, they took a tour through the base. They found a lot of creature comforts, but then they realized, oh man, a lot of us are getting real sick or, you know, getting terrible cancer or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the survivors who were able to survive through that didn't come away totally whole. They mutated, they changed, they went insane. Uh, the leader ended up going by the name Father Retribution, who was in charge of the Scarred, in the early edition of the games, he was still a semi-active character. In the newer edition of the games, as far as I can tell, he is uh, no longer part of the background. I don't know if that was a retcon or, or what exactly the plan was there, but uh, the, I mean, the or name is Scarred. Straight up dead, possibly. Yeah, <laughs> entirely possible. Um, the name, the Scarred, was around the idea that you know that process scarred and changed them, and they, they really don't like the Forsaken. The biggest thing I would say about Dark Age to know is it's a game where there isn't one black and white good guy. Every faction has some good things about them. Every faction has some bad things about them. Scarred skew much more towards the hard to be terribly sympathetic with, but I, I, I wouldn't look at them as kind of like a Fallout style, you know, radioactive ghoul, mindless bad guy. There, there, there is some some culture there. Speaking of uh, culture, <laughs> um, Brood, who are, are uh, kind of the bio horror faction of Dark Age, um, the background for them is a conglomeration of companies were trying to develop the perfect soldier. They were bioengineering different types of soldiers, some designed for the front line, some designed more strategy. They were fairly successful in that endeavor. The biggest part of their success was a entity that could psychically control and could develop strategies for controlling uh, these bioengineered troops. When stuff went down, everyone tried to get off the planet. They tried to, to load this into their, their ships to go, and it snuck out. It realized it was being taken off world, didn't want to go, wanted to stay with its, its babies, and the babies helped it escape. Um, it fell into a swamp. It wasn't terribly well supported, uh, and it went nuts. Um, it just started taking advantage of the environment, bioengineering a bunch of uh, children, and uh, controlling them, who also all kind of went nuts. Um, the 
creatures it created are somewhat based on humans, but also have insect DNA, have lizard DNA. So it's this weird mix of almost Resident Evil-style bio-horror, but also kind of mixed with Gerald Brom art, because the game's based on Gerald Brom art. So you have some some weird stuff in these guys. Um, the game recently released a PDF of rules for more of the faction. The background is changing there, too. There's some tie-ins with the Xenoshift uh, card game from Cool Mini or Not, uh, taking advantage of some of that art. Uh, one of the factions is now sort of, kind of, I don't know, Mardi Gras, the bio-horror faction. Like, better not come around here, boy. I, I, Deliverance, I guess. I don't know. It, it's 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 weird. I feel, I feel like Deliverance is probably a better descriptor than modern Mardi Gras. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, it, it is, uh, it, it is, um, they actually look really, really cool. Um, I, I do wish that they came out. I do wish that the book itself came out because from where it seemed like the story was going in some pretty interesting directions, um, essentially, you know, because prior you had one broodmare, you know, you had the mother and she had her children some of which were like prominent children like Alexa um and mean jellybean but you end up having a story of her sending them out you know to try and expand the territory a little bit get new bio samples see what else is out there um and yeah you find out that some of uh the corruption from the swamp has turned settlers or nomads who are sitting out in you know, the harbor area of Adder over years into half brood kind of fish, half human people. Um, and while they feel like a certain kinship with the mother, they're not totally dominated by her. Um, and they do seem to have like some free will. It seems like there's a lot of cool stuff going on with it. The art for it was very interesting. Um, and on the other side of things, they did go into like Owen was saying with the Xeno shift where there was something else that crashed out in the ocean coming from a more advanced spaceship from a, from another planet where they seemed to be working on similar experiments. And while, you know, the one developed on Otter would be the mother, it seems like whatever crashed out in the ocean and has made its way ashore is the father and has like its own kind of thing going on. So there's definitely so like it intru it seems like it was going to introduce a lot more character and a lot more individuality to the different sub factions of brood instead of being one hive mind uh faction yeah i I definitely think it was an interesting way to branch out. I remain convinced that the whole uh Alexa broodmere sub faction was just uh Mike Chenal trying to put his foot down and start a uh, gritty reboot of Squidbillies, but uh, that's neither here nor there. So uh, <laughs> speaking of uh, the mutated outcast, why don't you give people a flavor for what uh, not mutated outcast look like? Yeah. So outcasts are outcasts were kind of a catch all for things that were human, but not forsaken and not scarred. Um, and I say that because the sub factions within the outcasts kind of vary fairly radically. Um, Outcasts in general are people who didn't fit in in the Forsaken colonies, but didn't quite go as far out there as the Scarred, and they've settled in the surrounding areas, um, some of them in a little bit more of a peaceful way, like the Salt Flat Nomads, um, who might be the only thing semi-close to a good guy in the game, <laughs> sort of, maybe, <laughs> um, where they are primarily farmers who go out into the salt flats where it's almost impossible to live but manage to to make it by primarily by being nomadic following the moisture um and keeping large packs of i guess you could call them animals but um they look a little bit strange and they're very kind of tribalistic they have a lot of interesting kind of rules and honor combat and all different types of systems with that there's more generic outcast communities um, where you might see something like warlords in the community. You might see traveling, uh, traveling uh, beer brewers, or you know, if it's close to beer, whatever, <laughs> whatever you might be able to make in this wasteland with broken technology. 
And then going to the, the complete far side of uh, the outcasts, you have the two other sub-factions being the slavers, who are exactly what they sound like, and they primarily deal in the mostly human slave trade. They're one of the most feared factions in the story, as far as uh, Dark Age goes, because while you know some of the other factions might kill you, torture you, eat you, press you into service, they're not actually going to enslave you. Um, and lastly being the court I mean, if, you, if you're looking at it from a 40k perspective, you'd be kind of looking at a society of Ogren. Um, they are genetically modified mutants that are larger than most humans and slightly dumber than most humans. Um, and they kind of have their own society where they aren't treated uh, like garbage where they were um, treated that way with, by the Forsaken, who's the new religion kind of saw them as a outcast kind of aberration, um, or the Scarred, who primarily saw them as large chunks of meat to experiment on. Mm -hmm. So they form their own society where they are actually kind of appreciated in the outcast culture. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll shotgun through the last three because I think they're they're a little bit less expanded and they're they're also a little bit easier to explain. So you got the the core, so all all caps core. Um, they're angry murder robots. The end. Done. Cool. Next one, Kukulkani, uh, space Mayans. They, they they are they are you know space snakes on space planes that travel around as Mayans and kill people, but have super technology and are ruled by a giant skate snake named Kukulkan. It it's weird, but it it kind of works. The models are beautiful, and they're awesome. Uh, Bounty you think Brian would be upset if we referred to Kokokani uh, as Stargate the faction. I I, <laughs> I I can live with it. I, I I I can I can definitely live with it. Um, yeah, the the bounty hunters are just kind of the, the leftovers. They are technically a faction, but they're not really a faction. If you play an all bounty hunters list, you're probably going to play a slavers list under the last set of rules um so yeah that's uh that's the really 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 high level i think in dark age in terms of the rules just to give like a quick quick flavor relative to other games d20 based um the tagline for the game is everything dies and the dice mechanic definitely helps with that so it's kind of the opposite of uh D, &D. so a one is really good a 20 is really bad because a one, which is a, a critical, tends to do extremely good things. So if you roll a one and a hit, you just automatically wound. If you roll a one on your armor save, you automatically pass it regardless of everything else. 20 is really bad. If you roll a 20 to hit, you could malfunction or you lose an action point. If you roll a 20 on your armor save, you, in most cases, lose an extra wound. That sort of 5% chance of something really good, 5% chance of something really bad plays into the theme of the game and also keeps things really interesting. So it's kind of a nice uh, balancing mechanic. The game is based upon action points. So if you're familiar with other games that use this, each model has a pool of action points. You activate, uh, you know, one player activates something, another player activates something. And you, you take actions using these action points in any order. So unlike a game like 40K where everyone moves and everyone attacks, you can move, attack, attack, move. Order of operations can be whatever you'd like it to be. Uh, squad linking, which we mentioned before, is kind of the big innovation of the game, in my opinion. Models can activate, and you can essentially chain activate multiple models based upon one model going. So let's say you've got four models all with the Bane keyword. As long as they're within four inches of the first model you activate, you can say, I'm going to activate this model, and then he will squad link with these models. And the first model will go, and then instead of your opponent getting an activation, you'll then activate the next model in the squad link. It is a really elegant solution to taking multiple models in a theme and making that interesting. And without having to have the hassle of squads and coherency, to me, it was one of the more standout features of Dark Age. Um, there's a lot we could cover in terms of how movement works, how terrain works. It's all, you know, 
all due respect to the designers of the game, all fairly standard fare. Um, if you play tabletop skirmish games, it's not going to be anything that uh, particularly jumps out at you. Uh, Chris, was there anything else in the rules that you think is really standout we should cover about Dark? Um, I do think that the on-hold system is something that's fairly interesting. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, because when it comes down to it, you uh, talking about the action points, you could spend two action points to put a model on hold. Um, and that gives you the ability to react to your opponent um, doing things to you, whether it's trying to dodge out of an attack that they make against you. Um, if you had the ability to create like a smoke template, you could do that as a reaction. Um, so it was interesting because un it wasn't a system where you can't react at all, like a lot of war games that are out there. And it's also not a system like Infinity where reactions are as big of part of the game as actual activations. Um, so it, it led to a lot of counterplay um, and definitely the ability to kind of play a little bit more cautiously and a little bit more balanced rather than kind of just blitzing across the table a lot of the time. Um, I definitely think it, it helped make it feel like you always had a good move. So in other words, if you had a model that didn't have anything better to do, you at least always could go on hold in case you got surprised. Yeah. And I definitely think that was interesting. Um, some of the initiative things as well were pretty neat as, you know, um, looking at it when you roll for your initiative at the beginning of each turn, if you win initiative, um, it's not, oh, either I choose to go first or I let my opponent go first. You can choose to go first or you can choose your opponent's model that needs to activate first. Um, which leads to some really amazing things because you can, you know, if he has a melee model and you primarily have a lot of ranged models, you want him to activate his big melee cabricane first, you know, or luck because it's a big centerpiece model. You want to see where it's going and hopefully extend to where you can hit him or force him to keep that model outside of the play a little bit longer. Um, so I thought that was a little bit of a more of a unique trait to Dark Age. Um, Dark Age also had a interesting way of blending point scoring where you do it. At least I think they did a little bit earlier than some games did, which is you had primary and secondary objectives. The primary being the mission that both people played at the same time, some of which were super duper murder heavy, um, some of which were very objective driven. And the secondaries were all based on a tactic deck that you kind of, um, in later versions of the game, the most recent version of the game, you actually got to tailor your deck of secondary objectives to the army that you're playing, which made it pretty interesting. You take 16 cards, usually have about a hand of two that as you score, you can replenish your hand. Um, giving you additional opportunities. Um, most missions allow you to discard between one or two of those to draw, one, you know, to replace up to that hand, um, which led to a lot of interesting kind of scoring options, led to a little bit more ability with um, your army, where if you had, you know, if you have a bunch of cheaper throwaway guys, you know, um, you had objectives that would kind of tailor to that you know, because you'd be looking at scoring by putting three people on three different objective markers or by putting three people onto one single objective marker. If you had a really fast force like Aircast, you'd have objectives where you could pick something up at one objective marker and drop it off at another, you know, and so on and so forth. Ranged attack, um, killing large models, killing small models. There was a lot of just really interesting options for scoring points that kept every game kind of feeling fresh i i think you, you definitely hit on a big thing with that to give some perspective about the history of the game it it got to a very good place i don't think it was perfect but it, it was it was in a, a pretty solid place when the game started like any other skirmish game you just had scenarios then at the end of the first edition you started getting each faction or in some cases, each sub-faction had three specific scenarios for them. Those were a little uneven at points, but they were at least thematic and interesting. 
the scenarios continued to develop. It wasn't until after the 2013 rules came out that you got the secondary objectives. I think they were smart to allow you to tailor your deck. So it wasn't like if you were smart, you would be in a situation where you drew a secondary was completely worthless to your army. So if you were playing an army with no range attacks, you could not pick to in or you could choose not to include in your deck the secondary objective that required you to, to kill someone with a range attack. Um, kind of common sense stuff. The game, because of the dice, had a really strong comeback mechanic. And I think the secondaries were a good way to differentiate more skilled or more familiar uh, players from less familiar players, even in cases where the dice could swing wildly. I think there still were some secondaries that at a high competitive level were fairly auto-include in every deck and some that I don't think you would ever take. I thought the addition of faction-specific secondaries was an interesting take and could be an interesting way to balance things going forward. I was a little bummed they weren't a free PDF, but that is what it is. I do think that the secondaries could have used another round of polish, but they were in a pretty good spot. Uh, on your note on initiative, I would actually say that was prop. The, the system itself was interesting, and I, I think it was a unique feature of Dark Age. I think it in many times could lend itself to interesting tactical decisions and surprises. I also think at a high competitive level, it was a weakness of the system because at a certain point for many scenarios, there would be a turn, whether it was turn two or turn three, where whoever won initiative could more or less determine the game. Um, and there were some things done to try to make that feel more fair uh, or make it feel like it was harder for someone just to run away with the game and then win initiative and just go off that. So in the last edition of the game, there was a mechanic added where you added your VP total to your initiative role. So if you, you I would say we were playing a game and I was up 10 to zero, I would be adding 10 to my D20 role versus you adding nothing. So you were much more likely to win initiative. I thought that was an interesting comeback, but I also feel like sometimes it was maybe a little too punishing. So I think that was something that still probably needed a little bit more polish, but all in all, I thought the game was in a pretty dang good spot by the time it was done. And yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of other things that were very interesting in the game. Um but that we can go a little bit more into detail <laughs> at other points. I'll, 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 I'll tackle probably like the, the, the big one. And it's not necessarily a mechanic of the game, but I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it just because I think it was such a draw to Dark Age. And that's the Immortals. So the national championship for Dark Age was a tournament called the Immortals Tournament. The winner of that tournament got to design a model for Dark Age. That's a really cool prize. That, that, that's a really, really, really cool prize. So a lot of the game's development was at least in part driven by people who won Immortals. Uh, for example, the Outcast subfaction, the first Immortal winner was a guy named Chris Hodginski, or Hodge. Hodge designed a model and named it after himself, as is his right to do. It didn't really fit into the, any of the existing subfactions, so he and the designers decided that he needed to be in a new faction, so that's where Outcast came from. I, I think that's a really interesting and important part of the history of the game, and I think it also got a lot of people interested because they saw, hey, there's an opportunity for this small game for me to actually get a model made by myself. That's awesome. I, I want to I take part in this. So I, I do think that's something that... Uh, that we should mention at a high level. I do think it's also interesting too that um, while well, Dark Age made that a competitive thing, which which was great and awesome, a lot of other companies since that point have, especially as Kickstarters become more of a thing, has have done that. Like, oh yeah, man, people want to be part of a game. Um, here, somewhere between a thousand five thousand dollars, like you're, you'll <laughs> you'll be in this game, you know, like which which is also awesome. I'm not I'm not knocking it. I'm super jealous. But you know, like, um, it was it was very cool that it was it was a lot more equal when it came down to Dark Age. That um, 
immortals you know anybody had a chance it really was not a oh man if you have enough money to throw at this um you too can be a game model you know like hey if you have eight million dollars you too can go to mars like um (laughs) but yeah i I think it, it was very cool it was very balanced and it wasn't just you know that oh, I get to design my models. I'm going to write out my rules and my points and great, I'm going to have a 75 point model that really should be costed at 500. You'd be working with the game designers themselves um, to make sure that the model was balanced in terms of the game. Yeah, and and I've, I've been close friends with some people that, that have actually had the pleasure of doing that. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention I, I came this close twice to getting it done for myself. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's the breaks. It's a dice game. Um, yeah, I felt like both times I got there, I got really close and, uh, you know, it, it came down to some dice rolls that didn't go my way. Um, both my opponents were really, really, really great players, too. So taking nothing away from them. But, uh, you know, hey, it, hopefully it comes back and I get my, my third shot at it and hopefully I cross the finish line this time. Third time's the charm and all that. But uh, the only other thing to really add in that um, I'm not I don't think we hit was Mal's. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We, we well, we, we, we talked about it like. Um, how the 20s are important, but I, I do think males are important. So, so go ahead. Yeah. So males were something that um, initially, <laughs> initially going into the game where I, it, it was one of the things that kind of gave me pause about getting into the game at first, because Bobby was describing it to me. I'm like, man, you know, I don't know if I like the idea that my stuff is going to blow up when I use it, <laughs> but um, it makes a lot of sense. It actually does add a lot of flavor to the game, um, and there are ways to get around it. Um, but essentially, if you have any type of like higher technology weapon, um, it has the potential to do better things in the game. You know, obviously, a super soaker f- flamethrower is going to do a little bit more than an iron pipe is. But to kind of balance that out and also make it more fluffy. Anything that's more technological in the game also has the possibility of breaking down in the game. Um, and how that was represented was with uh, mouths or malfunctions. So typically, you know, you have your stat line across the card. You had a certain number that you'd be adding to your opponent's defense. And then you had to roll underneath it. And usually the mal was a higher number, like a, you know, 20 or 19 or 17. If you hit the mal number higher... Um, you'd end up getting a malfunction, which could represent itself in a variety of ways, but most likely you were hitting yourself with the weapon. As far as the rules go, sometimes pretty explosively. So, you know, if you had the Super Soaker Flamethrower roll a mal, the whole template would be randomly adjusted to go into a different direction where you might have sprung a leak and sprayed down, like, half your own dudes instead of your opponent. Um... And then if you died from it, because those people were typically not very heavily armored, you'd also explode, um, possibly doing even more damage to friendlies. Well, that, that, that's that's specific to you. You're thinking of firestorms, which had a special rule that, that made them explode. Yes, firestorms you, had explosive end, which created that. Most most things did not force you to explode. But yeah, overall, it was it was very interesting. It kept the game very fluffy. It added a little bit of balance to it. And you also had the opportunity of either going to gamble a little bit more and just rolling with it or trying to balance out your high-tech weapons with superior maintenance. Um, So you could take like an engineer of some kind in your army for a lot of the armies and it would give you the possibility of uh, superior maintenance tokens, which you could spend to negate a mal. Um, basically to represent that, hey, this army has this engineer with them. He's taking care of the gear in between um, battles, which also meant if you managed to get your engineer killed, um, you still had the superior maintenance tokens because they were a separate mechanic from the person themselves, which was a pretty neat way to do it and a way that like made sense in the game universe. Yeah, I, just from a history perspective, it was interesting how much of that they got right at the beginning and how much of that they they added in and, and tweaked and streamlined going forward. So so Mal's were there from day one. The mechanic where you you know roll a d20 wherever, you look at the top of the number, the triangle in the d20, wherever that points, that's where your, your template's going. That was there from day one, which is... Really interesting because there were a lot of other mechanics like that that eventually got cut for being um, a little too fiddly. Uh, so, so case in point, when you 
uh, failed a uh, psychology check for Panic in the original game. Panic wasn't just a debuff state as it is in the final game. You would then take your model, roll a d20, and you'd move that many CM in the original version of the game in the direction that it was pointing like a scatter roll. And if you cross bases with any friendly models, they would attack the model running away, which was <laughs> really, really cool, but also like completely too fiddly for a street. Like it made sense to cut it. Mm-hmm. Th- there was just a lot of stuff like that, that it was interesting how much they got right at the beginning. And it, it, I, in my opinion, it only got better from there. I, I do think the one thing I would criticize about the later versions of the game that didn't work as well for me, but I do think worked from a product standpoint. So I understand why the decision was made was the original game was kind of a bleak, cynical game. The game was designed to be somewhat realistic. So things like gang up bonuses showing that even if you were a Superman, if five guys jump you, even if they're weedy, they're probably going to hurt you a lot. That was by design. The game originally was much more around small stakes. So even the named characters we know and love now, so people like St. Mark, people like um, the current leader of the Toxic Cult, whose name escapes me for reasons that are embarrassing. Um, Father Kerwin. Father Kerwin, thank you. He wasn't even the head of the Toxic Cult. He was just a father in the Toxic Cult. (laughs) People died a lot. Everyone died. People died in, in... in the background. So it was a little bit surprising as the game went on that they kept a lot of that in the rules of the game, but I feel like they started walking it back in the fluff. And I would even say towards the end, you started seeing it get walked back a little bit in the game. So superior maintenance for a long time was a fairly rare ability towards the end. I feel like there were updates to factions that were, how do we get this faction superior maintenance? Um, K3 being the, the most notable example recently, but Core also got a similar update. Um, I I didn't... Well, like I was going to say Core slash Brood got the, yeah. theoretically got the update with Aaron, which was really funny for pud throwers, but yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, he, he's, he's, he's maintained... really maintained products. your little baby eater things. Yeah. <laughs> um, again that's that's a personal preference thing to me though if the theme of the game is like life is random and strange and if you're a coil which is one of the kind of quintessential forsaken generic units which are people that are lightly armored with uh spring loaded buzzsaw shooters that you, you put on your hand and you shoot out they're really hard to maintain and sometimes they malfunction they jam and the buzzsaw shoots into you they, they, they have a reasonably high malfunction number the original purpose of that was to allow some factions some access to technology so it would do have the potential to do a lot of damage but there was risk involved in it i feel like with time mal just kind of became part of the game so it wasn't necessarily tied to that technology end it was more tied to just here's something that could happen so you know Hence, you know, pud throwers having a malfunction where I guess you forgot to load your, your pud. You know, the, the scarred have a lot of melee malfunctions, which is just kind of confusing to me for, you know, guys swinging pipes. You know, d- d- does your pipe explode? Um, th- that can be really funny. It, it can make really memorable at the table moments, but uh, it did seem to kind of deviate from the original. Yeah, I mean, I think that covers like a lot of the very unique things. Um, you know, obviously we'll come back, we'll have more broken down things because you know there a lot of the other things are reasonably represented in other war games. You know, like model volume, movement, action points, alternating activations, um, terrain. There, there were some very interesting, you know, objective rules and terrain mm-hmm. rules, as well as some wonkier, <laughs> wonkier object objectives such as you know a caravan that actually moves um <laughs> but it, it, it's kind of the unspoken rule of dark age every every year they put out a scenario pack let's say they put out six five would be amazing and one would be like what the heck were you thinking <laughs> I, I, like i it, it, like, like best intentions you know i like heck i play tested and like we really tried and then you know you really get some table time with always one that was like like what on earth were we thinking um yeah that one was owen's fault (laughs) (laughs) no 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 um 
the, the, I, I, when I came back to the game post 2013, the every year before I even started play testing, there was always something that was like, "What the? Like, like okay, we're gonna we're rolling the chart to see which scenario. Oh, we got this. No, we're we're not doing that. Yeah, it 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 was uh it was funny how that worked out. But I mean, I feel like that's every game. I mean, name a war game where every single scenario in the competitive play packet is is perfect. Yeah, I mean, like when it comes down to it, I, I think what's you're always left with kind of that thing of like either you can have scenarios that are incredibly like basically almost as close to chess balanced as possible, but they'll most likely be boring Mm -hmm. if that's the case. Or you can have scenarios that are super fluffy and crazy interesting and have like a lot of replayability. And I feel like dark age definitely managed to stay in the middle of those two things. Um, the scenarios themselves were interesting um, in that typically in a tournament when you're playing three rounds each round would feel pretty different from the last round it wasn't like oh man you know this time we meet in the center but it's a circle instead of a square like it was always a much different thing like oh wow so this one is about our champions you know are the heroes of our army killing each other Followed by, you know, I need to find spare parts to reactivate a power tower. Followed by, I need to push a caravan across a map, you know. Um, and, you know, it turning into like a huge rugby match. Um, and all of them kind of like emphasize different strengths in armies. And I don't want to say they, they punished skews because you could definitely still get away with a skew in some of the, uh, in, in the majority of the play. But it was always done in like a pretty balanced way. There wasn't like any scenario that I walked into and was like, man, like uh, I'm playing this army and we're playing this scenario. So, well, I guess I lost. I, I would say, too, I think this the secondary objectives really helped here. One thing we didn't cover because we talked mostly about the cards when we talked about this earlier is that you were able to bring three 50 millimeter bases with you and then place those as part of setup for the scenarios. Sometimes you wouldn't get all three. Sometimes it'd be a total of five. Sometimes each player would only get two, but you'd have some control of where they went. And those were how, in many cases, you got secondary objective points. There were, of course, secondary objectives that were based around killing a model in uh, specific different ways, but there were also a lot that were involved with moving to a objective and doing something. Those objectives, you had control the placement over. And I feel like that extra control gave a lot of variety to the different scenarios. It also helped normalize, you know, the difference between a store's terrain density and a major tournament's terrain density. That's always a concern. I think it was a really, really smart way to do it. And it helped keep things feeling different, even if you're playing the same set of scenarios over and over. Yeah. But... I don't want to go too, too much further, just because, as we mentioned, we are going to have a second part of this where we deep dive into it. Um, I, I would just say from a, a very, very high level, if you haven't checked out Dark Age, give it a look. It's a game that doesn't grab everybody, but like a few other of the kind of cult classic skirmish games, it grabs people and it grabs some people hard. You know, Chris and I both are are mega fans of the game. Um, I don't, I don't think that's a secret. Uh, we obviously are biased here, but check it out. There's something about the combination of art, small scale. The models, in my opinion, were and remain on the high end of uh, sculpting quality and model quality. And there's some unique themes in them. The Dragiri really are a unique look. The Brood really are a unique look. Even the Forsaken, you know, okay, post-apocalyptic religious people isn't the most original idea in the world, but they're implemented in a fairly interesting and unique way. Yeah, I would second definitely give it a shot. And I think the other thing that's great is when you look at the game community, um, I think the game has somehow managed to be even more popular than it was when it was supported uh, over the past couple of years. Um, All the cons that I've been to, there's typically some type of Dark Age game going on. Um, a lot of times, even including tournaments, um, I know Adepticon typically has at least one Dark Age tournament. Captain Con always has at least one Dark Age tournament. Um, so the, it's definitely a game you can get into now and still 
not really have to like look for that play group um just want to check out uh probably samaria reborn uh which is the facebook group for it and you can always check out the dark age website just because on the dark age website they do still have all of the rules cards etc available and available for free if you like this uh a, like and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, check us out on Facebook, but also uh, stick around for the second uh, second episode. We should have on a special guest, and uh, well, we'll talk a little bit more about some of our favorite memories, uh, models, see if we can get some more in-depth stuff on Dark Age, and just more the, the human element of it. So normally we include that in these episodes. For this one, because we have a lot to say, we didn't want to cut it off, and we didn't want to you know, try to do a, a two- or three-hour episode. We thought we'd split it up. But uh, I think that's it for this one. So I'm Owen. I'm Chris. And have a good one. Intro music is Axe to Mouth by Pulp 45, which is Owen's old band. Outro music is Control My Fate by Ataraxia, which is Chris's old band. All songs used with permission. If you like what you hear, please like or subscribe. Thanks.